Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are just delighted to be joined by this, our very own El Jefe, the very president of the Davenant Institute, Dr. William Bradford Littlejohn, which we love to say, because that's such a beautiful English name that flows so well off the tongue. In fact, when I first when I first saw Brad Littlejohn's name in the comment section of Stephen Wedgworth's blog, I thought that it was a, like one of those homeschooler aliases, but it turns out Brad is actual OG named Littlejohn, which is pretty cool, and uh, I've enjoyed that since then. Um, we all came back just now from ETS in uh, Denver, Colorado, at the, the, the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. We all had a great time connecting just with other branches of Christ's church and, and meeting a lot of our friends and, and faiths for the first time at the Davenant Institute. As all of you know, our one of our big themes is that we're an army of friends. And so these moments where we get to meet one another face to face really are essential to our mission and are really the, the kind of ground zero from which even these kinds of conversations emerge. But one of the things that's been floating around in our network and was especially uh, floating around at ETS a bit this year is this subject of Christian nationalism. At this point, it's kind of a, one of those journalistic labels, much like the label CRT or evangelicalism or something like that. That's kind of a thin signifier thrown out into the world and all sorts of spooky or not so spooky things can be attached to it. And often the argument over Christian nationalism is this kind of bandying about a label where there's really not much agreement on me the mental content, you might say. Uh, and so here we are, uh, the Davenant Institute, who has a, a history of really talking about the, the recovery of reformed political theology, which is what Bradford's primary vocation is, you might say even outside the Davenant Institute, is that he's a, a historical theologian and a political theologian. Uh, and and he, had a, he, he had a debate uh, with Dr. Jonathan Lehman of Nine Marks Ministries over this topic of, of things related to this issue of Christian nationalism. And of course, for those kind of in the know and following these debates, there's this recent book by Stephen Wolf that's just been published by Canon, A Case for Christian Nationalism. Uh, it, already the term is all over the news. And so part of what we want to do in a, in, a, in, a, in a discussion like this is just to maybe talk about what 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 are the varying means that uh, meanings that could be associated with such a term? Where does Davenant, where does our project in a sense intersect and where does it reject perhaps a lot of what's going on under a label like that? Uh, and uh, yeah, we just think that would be helpful for those who are, again, you're hearing the term largely because it's just emerging in the public sphere, but there's an enormous amount of confusion about what it might mean. Um, Dale, do you have anything to add to that? And then I'd just love to turn it over to Brad after perhaps, Dale, you say something and just uh, hear Brad talk about like, what do, what do you think about this term? What are the varying ways that we as Christians and Protestants can relate to it? Uh, so I'll turn it over to Dale for a second here. No, I think it'd probably be, that's the natural starting point. So if you want to just talk a little bit about, yeah, right, okay. um, sort of what do we mean by it? How's it being used by the if various- If we're using it at all. <laughs> if we're using it at all, correct. Yeah. yeah, so maybe we can start there and then we'll talk. Yeah, well, this question actually came up. Uh, somebody asked this question from the audience, the debate, how does what you're saying relate to Christian nationalism? Um, and I would say what I said then, uh, what I would say here, in brief form, uh, is that there are at least there there are many senses in which the term can be used, but I think two in particular present themselves. 
the one that really scares people particularly um well i think both scare people but the right. one that the one that the one that should scare people for good reason uh is one in which the idea of america as a christian nation is very much tied in with the idea of america as a, a sort of chosen nation right um that america is called to fulfill god's purposes in the world in some kind of special and unique way uh almost it's almost a called and chosen nation in the same sense that ancient Israel was. And so therefore, if you believe that, then you have eschatologically freighted the experience of a particular nation within history, such that um, everything that happens in politics is bearing this just un unbearable weight, right? That we, I mean, we saw this, of course, with the response of some, uh, to the 2020 election, uh, Eric Metaxas and the whole, uh, you know, the shofars and the, 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 the March, you know, I can't remember what they, they called it, but anyway, he'll, Michael you know, Flynn is certainly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, so there's this rally in, in DC that's like Christians need to rally to, to defend, to save God's anointed basically. Uh, and to hold on to hold on to power, because if we don't, then this nation is going to the dogs. And if this nation is going to the dogs, what will become of a millennium of darkness? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think anyone with a, a modicum of theological sophistication can spot the problems within that conception. And we have to be able to affirm that uh, that that, well, I mean, first of all, we have to say America has been providentially used by God as, as an instrument, I, I think largely for good, um, as an instrument in some ways for spreading and strengthening the church. Uh, but um, we have to be able to say that and then yet acknowledge that God can God can pick up and cast away instruments at his will. We see this, um, you know, America is more like, presumably, uh Persia, hopefully, you know, hopefully not quite as bad as Babylon, maybe, maybe it's like Persia, you know, maybe George Washington's like Cyrus, I don't know, um, but not like ancient Israel, right? So um, Persia is indeed called by God to serve as this kind of benevolent empire. Um, but that calling is, is not something that has eschatological significance. Right. So we need to say it matters if our nation is a Christian nation. Yes, like that matters. Tempor and temporally it matters, but it doesn't matter for the final working out of God's redemptive historical purposes. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I found interesting with the um, debate with Lehman was your sort of framing the magistrate as a pedagogue, a sort of teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think when we get into these conversations, that sort of gets lost. A lot of my friends that are not Christians that listen to us talk about what we mean when we talk about, you know, we want America to be Christian is they immediately think, here comes the tyranny. Uh, here comes the sort of like, you know, extreme right conservative um, punishment of everyone that breaks God's law. Uh, so it's very negative. Ne negative emotions are associated with the magistrate when you attach Christianity as a qualifier to what we what we're talking about. But you used um, you framed it as a teacher. The, the the magistrate is a teacher. So maybe drill into that a little bit more. Uh, you know, like the responsibility. If we think about the magistrate as a teacher, what are its responsibilities? 
And what does that mean for people who are not Christians? Which What can they learn from a Christian magistrate? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you're right. In these conversations, people tend to immediately jump to, you know, well, who are, you know, how, who are you going to be coercing and how much? And I right. mean, and Lehman was using that language, constant language of coercion, language of the sword. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the magistrate is characterized as the one who bears the sword, uh, not in vain. Um, but in that same passage, Romans 13, it, it notes that not only does the magistrate punish the evil, but he praises the good. Uh, and that language is also is first yeah. Peter two, punishing the evil, rewarding the good. So there's a negative function and there's also a positive function. What does that rewarding look like? Right. Um, so clearly there's a, we need to think of the role of political authority in bringing about some desired goal um along this whole spectrum from on the one hand you could uh you know positively forbid some behavior and attach the strictest punishment to a violation on the other end of the spectrum you could positively command the opposite behavior and attach a very strong uh incentive to that uh and in between those you could have you could have something that is you know forbidden but you just kind of get a slap on the wrist something that's forbidden but you really is no punishment at all. It's just kind of, you know, it's a law that's on the books and everybody kind of knows you shouldn't do it, but um, you're not actually punished for violation of it. Uh, or then you've got something that is kind of um, a law, a, a sort of positive practice that's enjoined by law uh, and people do it because it's recognized by the community that's a good thing to do. So there's kind of social pressure custom pointing toward this would be a good thing to do you know etc so you've got this whole spectrum from kind of coercion against to coercion in favor of something and then all kinds of things that aren't really coercion in between that are actually forms of yeah. um, moral influence and this is where uh i mean it's interesting if we use the language of a, a pedagogue um of course a teacher uh, a teacher in the ancient world, a teacher actually in most cultures until now, would have actually had some coercive force at his disposal. He could <laughs> resort to corporal punishment if necessary. Right. But he didn't usually resort to corporal punishment, right? He might resort to, I mean, giving bad grades, to public shaming. Of course, you don't do that anymore. Um, certainly to um, giving, creating positive incentives. A good teacher creates a classroom environment in which Students know what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and are incentivized to pursue it. And at a certain point, if they are, if they're bad enough, then the kind of hard hand of the, the disciplinarian, uh, the principal or whatever may come in, <clears throat> but that's not kind of what's normally operative. And I think we need to recover a sense, an understanding of civil magistracy, which of course note Latin magistratus comes from magister the the magistrate is a teacher in the right. traditional understanding uh similarly he may have to resort to the sword uh but a, in a well-functioning society is one in which he doesn't have to resort to the sword most of the time uh because he rather he sets the norm he says this is what's expected of, of you and if he has um if he has charisma behind him if he has a uh, weight of tradition i mean you know you're you're much more successful in setting norms if those norms are kind of anchored in the community's understanding of itself over the centuries yes uh, so and his goal is to say this is what is good 
and create a context in which all kinds of forms of social pressure short of actual coercion are driving people toward that concept that's, of the good. That's a brilliant, brilliant observation because I think, um, you know, so when, you know, Dale, you used the phrase like we want America to be Christian. And in a sense, like there's a varying range of me uh, of meanings that could be attached to a sentence like that. And I think we all agree on one, which is very basic, which is like, we literally want Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the desire of the nations. And we want Americans and our nation and our communities to see he to whom all power in heaven and on earth has been given and to bow the knee and kiss the sun, partially at a civil level, because that's good for us. That is literally the, <laughs> the orienting point of civil flourishing in some point. But what, what none of us mean by that is that uh, that is to be seized in a sort of direct fashion. Uh, and this is actually one of the ways in which I think we, we you, uh, there's some disagreement when people even talk about something like Protestant political theology, especially a tradition that has a place for, a tradition that has a place for uh, revolution, even in some cases, we have to be very delicate in talking about precisely when we say we want America to be a Christian nation, at what point does revolution become a means to an end like that? And I think where Davenant perhaps is a bit distinctive in the, in the kind of sphere of those who talk about Protestant political theology is that we sort of come from the end, most of us, I, I don't want to speak for everybody at Davenant, but the center of gravity, perhaps I could say at Davenant, has always been, I think, toward the respect your parents, work within the laws, actually let's don't just burn down the institutions uh, to create some new thing. And there's a lot of risk of that kind of rhetoric, I think, and especially a post-MAGA era. And I wanna, I wanna actually connect that to this notion of the magistrate as pedagogue, because I think that's really crucial. And, and a reading of America. This is what's really interesting. And this is what's fun about Davenant is we have these people connected to kind of very different discourses and we can bring them together and really say some things that I think are unique. And one of the, one of the things you're saying, Brad, that's so interesting, this kind of range of degrees of non-coercion, but with coercion as kind of a, especially coercion of the body, because you can never really coerce the conscience, but the coercion of the body is kind of your stopgap mechanism. Every society has that. Every society has that range and every society has its highest goods. Everybody structurally has exactly what Brad just mentioned. But one of the things in America that's interesting is that precisely because its founding members, those 13 colonies, really like what held them together at the level of religious agreement compared to what you could say held people together in religious agreement in the past was relatively thin. And that's kind of ba baked into the DNA of, I think, the American polis and our, and our sense of commonwealth is an expectation of adult mutuality. This is John Adams. This is Alou Al Alexis de Tocqueville. And so one of the things that America always has been is not the stage where the magistrate is the adult talking to the six-year-old. A lot of society's laws work very much like that. I don't care what you think, you're gonna do this whether you like it or not. America's DNA has baked into the adult father. And, and as my dear friend Jim Pocta says, you never stop being their dad. And that's a great hope for people from broken homes. You never stop being their dad. You can begin being their dad when they're 30. Uh, but 
America has starts with 30 year old kids. The, the expectation of citizenry is kind of like a, you might almost say, you take those, that Romans 13 negative and positive roles of the magistrate, the sword versus the, uh, versus the positive good. The dad, when you're 30 years old, remains especially, and in fact, presses even more deeply into the role of that commender of the positive good, now more deeply refined in your life. But what's removed in a sense is like, we're gonna do this through external constraint. America just immediately, when we look around and say, okay, who are we? that's not going to work around here that well. That's probably going to leave in our destruction. And one of the problems, I think, this is, by the way, Robert Pogue Harrison has this brilliant book called Juvenescence, A Cultural History of Our Age. I believe that's how he puts it. But the word age there literally is, is how old is America as a civilization? And his argument is that we're both the youngest and the oldest civilization in the history of the world, partially because the expectation is that we start from that kind of adult mutuality. Uh, and one of the things that I think is happening in a lot of the recovery of kind of Protestant political theology is what, what we have to, to be able to connect is a recovery of principles whose application is to that situation of adult mutuality rather than a recovery of principles that's trying to cash out in this way that re just rejects the very rules and the DNA on the ground of who we are as America. And I think part of what we're after is Davenant, in a sense, is to be very realistic. What's America? What's the rules? Hey, guys, we've all agreed that the rules are we all have a say in what the common good is and try to move toward a common vision through the means of persuasion as adults. And one of the things going on in America right now, both on the right and on the left, is the infantilization of the hive mind, the reduction yeah. of the hive mind to children before parents, when actually what I think we're trying to recover at Davenant is no guys, we all have to be adults here. We all have to grow up. We all have to be adults. And that's when the project of Protestant political theology can be real in this world. Just jumping in a couple things there. Um, so people who watch the debate with Lehman, um, if, if you watch it, you'll note he really camps out on the the parent metaphor uh, and saying the, the, the role of the relation of the civil magistrate to citizens is that of a parent whose kids have grown up and left the house. Uh, so it seems to be in continuity with what you're saying about we have to treat people like adults. A couple tensions, though, I would say, first of all, he really seems to play it almost as a like, you know, you're very hands on and then you're like totally hands off. And right. I think, you know, as you Bye. said, you never stop being your kid's dad. Right. And 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 indeed, it's really kind of a unique, you know, our friend Anzi, from, who's from an Egyptian background, was saying it's really kind of a uniquely modern Western thing, this idea that, you know, your parents, your, your kids grow up and leave the house and then the parents just, you know, totally take a back seat. Yes. Uh, in other cultures, the parents are still very much there. Again, not, you know, not inflicting corporal punishment, perhaps, but with a strong moral authority. It's the removal of one kind of hands-on to another kind of hands-on. Right. And I think that's where, you know, when I kept trying to stress um, the, the magistrate's job of at least speaking the truth, presenting the good, um, uh, being a moral pedagogue to his people, that seems to, you know, we were particularly talking about the question of the first table of law. We both agree, you know, the magistrate is responsible for enforcing the second table of law. Is he responsible for enforcing the first table of law? 
Well, yeah, I would say yes, it, but it dep depends what you mean by enforce. You enforce in a proper mode, depending on whom you're dealing with. And he seemed to want to say, you don't, you can't, the magistrate can't do anything relative to the first table of law because the kids have left that house. Um, and that, that just seems to me to have a, a wrong understanding of uh, how you relate even to your adult children. Yes. Second point there is um, you talk about America being a kind of coming into being as a society of adults. It's important to recognize that doesn't just, you know, that doesn't just happen, right? They're not just, just like, um, you know, Adam may have been created, you know, as an, as an adult with a belly button, right? But, right. but nobody else in history is. And so no nation um, just comes into being de novo in a state of maturity. The reason why America comes into being as a relatively mature nation that is capable of being governed in this kind of unprecedentedly free way is because of centuries of yes effectively good parenting right good yeah. good civil parenting that enabled uh the english-speaking peoples to create the institutions and cultural norms uh and and habits of toleration that made possible more religious liberty in america than had previously existed and this is a point i wanted to i, I made in passing part of the reason i want to stress this different thinking about religious liberty is uh, um, that if we think of it just sort of a universal human right, people think, oh, those are benighted ancestors who just, you know, they're all bigots and they didn't understand that you need to give people religious liberty, not realizing that our current conditions of religious liberty, uh, or I would say maybe our recent conditions, I'm not sure we actually still have the current conditions, but mm -hmm. our recent conditions of religious liberty were only made possible because of a process of historical maturation before which that kind of liberty was not actually societally possible, right? Yeah. One thing I'm, because I'm, I've been thinking through this since the conversation started, you know, Brad's been thinking about this forever because that's what he does. Uh, I think this is forcing all of us to sort of say, okay, what is it we really desire? What is it we really want and what can we advocate for and how should we advocate for it? And I think, Joe, what you said is important, like uh, Davenant's a microcosm of, what I think our larger political project is in the fact that we use the phrase army of friends. Uh, and then we're talking about sort of familial relations within the American polis. Um, and that has a, you know, a hierarchy of authority, but it's still within the context of people that recognize one another in intimate ways as our quote unquote people. Right. Um, but one of the things that I've been struggling with is how do we understand what a nation is? Mm -hmm. And then what is it that makes America a nation? So, um, you know, if we say, well, shared history and shared language and shared food and, you know, just all the sort of cultural stuff, a particular philosophy. Well, for America, that gets a little tricky, right? Um, so when we say our people uh, and after we define what a nation is, what does that leave us? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because going back to the question we started with um, about how does this relate to Christian nationalism, you know, what I was doing in my debate was really, I was talking about the role of the Christian magistrate, which doesn't require a concept of a Christian nation. You can have a Christian magistrate um, who's 
got uh, first of all could be in a sort of city state as opposed to a nation so if we, but even if even if we mean nation and just kind of the loosest sense of a polis um a christian magistrate can may find himself trying to exercise authority rightly over a non-christian polis right um but he's only going to be effective in his task to the extent that the norms that he is trying to propound by law find an echo in the consciousness and customs of the people. Mm. And so the idea of a Christian, um, the idea of Christian nationalism, one of the things that it's getting at is that we need to recover some robust sense of a national identity uh, that every, every, successful nation has to have a clear consciousness of itself as uh, something greater than the sum of its parts. And that, that it, it is constituted by, as you said, these uh, shared language, shared history, um, facing adversity together, shared customs and norms by which people uh, relate to one another, um, shared religion, um, etc. And where I think, let me see if I can articulate this properly, but I think where a lot of current political discourses in among Christians is just talking past each other is you do have people on the one hand saying, maybe not that many, but um, a loud minority saying, we really need, we need Christian laws. Um, and then you have people saying, well, no, you can't, uh, you have to change the culture. You can't, you have to change people's hearts. Uh, you can't try to change people's hearts by law. So what we, yes, we do want, maybe we do want a Christian America, but that's going to be accomplished by, you know, evangelism. Conversion and revival. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, and the problem, and both of them have a point. I think that where a, a healthy Christian nationalism comes about is that the, where you recognize it's a two-way street, right? Law has this pedagogical function in which if you want to change people's hearts and habits, um, you can actually do that to a certain extent through law. So you shouldn't say, oh, don't use law, just use just use persuasion, right? Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, however, the law will, needs to find some point of contact within people's self-understanding, right? A law that is just imposed from above, from without, will always be reacted against. Whereas that, a law that, that codifies the people's own self-understanding that's where you actually get some momentum. And, and this so is exactly how a parent wins with their kid. That that's such that is such an important point because I think what's going on in so much of the Christian nationalist discourse is that it doesn't matter whether the law pings the people. It's just is it right? Boom, make it a law because hashtag we're principled. Uh, and 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 what you're doing there is identifying again the principle of persuasion as part of the law itself the law actually does and this has always been america the external constraints have to be a thing that the mass because america has america by its very principle of dna has to have a vector of eyeball on the mass has to be able to ping something that's really there in people. And, and, and that, I think, removes the fear of what anybody could be about. Because what we're, if Christian nationalism, if anybody's invocation of Christian nationalism ever means 
the triumph of a minority mass over the mass that is America. That is not anything anybody should be interested in. It really is, it has to be experienced just as Christian growth has to be experienced as something that is the movement deeper into what you already are. That's how we know, in fact, that we're experiencing a kind of healthy Christian growth as opposed to an ideology. And that's how we know that laws are healthy Christian laws. Uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to ideological Christian laws that are actually just going to create, because guess what? Your dad and your mom, uh, even when you're 30 and you have that agreement of adult mutuality, 60-year-old uh, dads and 60-year-old mothers speaking to 30-year-old mothers and so sons and daughters can alienate them and create a yeah. tension in the larger home that does not it does not work with the home. And so there's a, uh, and one of the things I want to say there is about, you know, this term equality. Uh, it is, so it can is I go jump ahead. Jump in real quick. Just yeah, a go ahead. caveat that I think you agree with, um, where you say we don't want to mean the triumph of a minority over the mass. Um, but I don't think, we also don't want to say that um, there's no, you know, you can't, you can't get anything accomplished politically until you already have majority support for it. I would say no. effective effective politics can mean using a minority position well to create consensus. Um, yes. So I, you know, you and, can, and the way you're doing you, you can, that you can, you can if you do it, if you do it well, you can sort of get out in front of people yeah. and get policies in place that yeah. if you just put them to referendum, you wouldn't have won. But right. if you put them to referendum 15 years later, you will. Right. Yes. And I think this is, of course, this is what, what the left, has, done. This is what left the le has been tremendously right. effective in this, right? I mean, Precisely. there was not a majority support for uh, for abortion for abortion when when Roe v. Wade happened. There's, there wasn't a majority support for yep. gay marriage yep. when Obergefell happened. Yep. Uh, and yet they were in they were they used a minority position uh, to kind of find anchor points in the right. collective psyche that they could say hey, this thing that you're not quite ready for is nonetheless um, a manifestation of what you are really about as Americans. That's right? that's that's the crucial point is the, yeah. the orienting points in the collective psyche. Right. Beautifully put, brother. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean is that laws have to target at least that or the yeah. home's going to fall apart. It's the same way you motivate your son. You know, the way you have a, you have a son who's growing up and what you real, you know, when there are kids, when they're small kids, it doesn't matter whether there's an orienting point in their collective psyche, <laughs> at least not all the time. Sometimes you can just, just say, if you try to go do that, I'm going to like stop you, <laughs> whatever you think. But you realize when your son's turned 15 or 16, it's right. like, okay, they can kind of get away with whatever they want, whether you like it or not, if they're smart enough. And so you actually have to, if you want to lead them, you actually have to find something in their collective psyche to motivate them by. And when you, especially in fact, it's something that to bring it together, especially right? when trying you're to... trying to lead them into something that is uncomfortable and like the mass, to put it that way, might not want to go there. It's especially at that point. And, and frankly, this is what the left understands. What the left understands is when they make those big movements that are not necessarily in the collective hive mind like Roe v. Wade, they're brilliant rhetorically at framing that big movement in a way that's very comfortable for people. 
in a way that's like, oh, okay, equality, that sort of thing. And here's where I think we redeem that language, by the way, Mm because one of the one of the reactions to that uh, right now is sort of like get rid of the language of equality. But one conversation Dale and I have been having that has been uh, it's odd. It's I think it's really opened up. uh, It's opened up a lot of thoughts for me, and I'm sure I'll, I'll be writing about this, but it's very interesting to me that Luther produces a world of three estates, right? The family, the church, and the commonwealth. But what happens in early modernity is the emergence of this very peculiar sphere called the public sphere, which it would be interesting to see, and I don't know that this is true, but it would be interesting to wonder, is there an argument to be made that the Protestant project uh, creates this fourth estate as a kind of meta estate above all, not not above, maybe below, I don't know what what preposition. In, in with and under. Yeah, in with, (laughs) beautiful brother, in with and under the three estates. As as an egalitarian mediator, because what's interesting about the public sphere is it is the one place where you can say, for instance, as it develops in the early modern period, precisely because the deepest ethical, religious, and moral persuasion is directly between God and the human soul, there's nothing about that that's hierarchical. Like women say, you know, like in these other states, there's like the head of the home, there's like men or priests, that sort of thing. But when it comes to just basic, should a human soul believe this or not, women stand in exactly equally the same relationship to that proposition as men do. And what happens in the public sphere, which is entirely a sphere that is that is oriented toward a culture of persuasion, and this gets into a, a culture of adult mutuality, is it becomes this sphere where women have very direct access all the way early on in the French salons. It's women who own the salons. And one of the frustrations, I think, for, for women in the modern church is, and I think this is something that we need to have an eyeball on as a civilization, and especially as people who are believe in the kind of conservative positions in some way about those other three spheres, one of the ways I think in which we can actually create a flourishing society is to recognize that in a society of adult mutuality, the public sphere is a place where women actually are equals. And when they can persuade a soul in a way that a man can, and better than a man can, they win. (laughs) And actually what you have to do in that sphere, uh, actually what you have to do in that sphere is What's, what's urgent, in fact, in that sphere, because it can also become a sphere of manipulation, as we see in propaganda, as, we, as we're seeing all today. What's absolutely urgent in that sphere is it just be a sphere of, uh, to, uh, to bastardize a Lewis quote, mere humanity. <laughs> uh, a, a point at which, to get back to this phrase you used, Brad, uh, what the public sphere forces us to do is to turn those appeals to, I'm forgetting the phrase you used, but sort of psychological nodal points you might- Anchor, anchor points within Psychological the anchor points. It forces you to make those as basic and broad and therefore, and I think this is the contribution of modernity to philosophy phenomenologically, uh, and therefore as calibrated all the way down to the basics of being a human as possible. And I think that if we fail to achieve that in our political appeals, 
in a modern world with this kind of public sphere, we're always going to be derivatives of the left because they know how to play this game a lot better than we do. Can I go back just a bit to the bit about women in the public sphere? Because um, I I might want to challenge that at least somewhat on historical grounds. And I'm not, we can then talk about what normative Normative grounds, yeah. yeah. But I mean, um, I'm cherry picking history to get to my yeah. Norm. Well, it's right. It's not Thank obvious you. to me that women. Uh, I mean, or I would. <laughs> that's a uh, polite way of saying it. It's obvious to me that women were not uh, invited into the public sphere as equal conversation partners until quite recently. Um, that they did play an increasingly influential role, um, particularly as they became- That's what I mean, that's all I mean. As they, you know, they became women of letters, you know, they were- in, they That's were, what I mean. Uh, is but, you, but, you but, but, hang beginning. on, but what's striking, you mentioned the, the salons, it, it strikes me that where they did have a large role, um, and Hooker actually talks about this. So it's, it's actually related to their role in the domestic sphere. So women influenced the public sphere through ho exercising hospitality. Um, it is the, uh, you, you talk about the, the women who hosted these salons using their hospitality gifts to then actually be a fly on the wall of the male conversations and then actually earn the right to contribute to those. Hooker talks about the role in which the um, women played in the spread of the, the Puritan movement because basically these, you know, these, these itinerant preachers who are, you know, being sort of kicked out of their pulpits and sort of chased around for their for their radical views uh the the godly women would invite them you know provide them a, a safe haven would 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 house them in, and let and and then invite people over and uh so that they could hear the words of the great preacher uh and then he's, he even has a sort of kind of sexist remark that those everyone knows is true uh about that the women really enjoy gossiping basically right the, the the fact that they really enjoy sharing information amongst one another among between among the network about how the saying, i think men enjoy gossip as much as women so uh i do think <laughs> we can reduce it to a sexist remark go ahead though. okay anyway well um he, he yeah he basically talks about how they were by their hospitality and by being kind of an inf information conduit right um they 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 played an outsized role in um in the, the the intellectual ferment of the movement so i don't know it might be it might be worth i don't know if we want to chase that down further but just sort of as a historical well, so, yeah so to uh, uh uh yeah what i mean by that historically is that it's it's at this point that you begin to see i think a natural space for women to enter the intellectual life in other words, it's not quite the domestic sphere. It's not quite the ecclesiastical sphere. And there's a lot of rules there. But there begins to be this odd sphere where it's not obvious how women relate to it. And certainly they're gonna, they're, they're, there's going to be a kind of default to deep historical patterns of hospitality, which are good patterns. You know, so I'm not, I'm not here to say those are bad patterns. Those are good patterns. And so that's going to be a role. But what you begin to see are these, exactly what you said is like the Republic of Letters is this place where the human soul just says, here are thoughts, boom. And it's actually designed to be a place that's kind of historically unprecedented, where here are thoughts, boom, are actually worked out very directly. And that's a space that women, because they're humans and they have souls, can enter very directly. And so you start to see Anne Conway, for instance. Uh, there's many names. In fact, there's whole. This is this is a, a recovery of, of recent uh, recent scholarship. In a sense, is you really do see 
a whole world for those who know where to look. And the problem is most of us don't know where to look because most scholars don't focus on it. But you really do see a whole world of female philosophizers uh, uh, develop. And you see the Voltaires and you see all the men of the early Republic of Letters interacting directly with these women as equal intellectuals. I don't mean in their souls. I just mean, uh, who knows what's going on in their souls. I just mean that like, this is a sphere, the Republic of Letters, which we're trying to recover in a sense in, in the Davenant Project, that just is a space that the human soul enters very directly. And in fact, one of the curious things I've seen at Davenant Hall that's so fascinating, because this is a common, you know, I, I say this out loud because I think it's such an important issue. Like, this is a common way, and especially in the Christian nationalism debate, because there's motifs in the Christian nationalism debate that are sort of get rid of the, the new role that the ladies are taking in the modern world, get back to the dudes. And it's like, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that there's there's nothing erroneous, that there's nothing of tension, that we don't need to recover a deeper Louisian vision in that hideous strength. But again, one of the deeply brilliant things about that hideous strength is that Lewis understands that men and women are going to come together again, but they're still going to be modern. Jane and Mark are modern people, and they remain modern people even when they connect to those ancient principles because they connect to those ancient principles, not by default. They connect to those ancient principles by enlightenment and will. And that's really significant in Lewis's whole vision of kind of the development of a civilization of sages and such. But all I wanted to say there, in Davenant Hall, one of the things that's been so encouraging to me is I'm seeing women come into our classes who are like, who tell me to the person almost, you know, there aren't conversations like this among women in most of the contexts I'm in. Women in conservative circles are, are intellectual women in conservative circles are very often deeply frustrated. And I suspect, this is just a, a theory and I'm really trying to think about it because I want our sisters, our intelligent sisters to thrive and not be tempted by bad ideologies. And one of the ways I wonder if our intelligent sisters can thrive is through a recovery. What Davenant is about is this recovery of the public sphere. And so it's fascinating as women come to our classes and it's like, you're equal here. All your questions, all the things, all whatever you want to ask, whatever you want to write, it's not just, it's not a threat. It's not a thing we need to get around. It's a thing we need to listen to and absorb. And we're precisely the place to come in and, and not, that's even the wrong way to put it, absorb that. You can even, because Davin, it's not a church. <laughs> uh, uh, it's not even, we've all talked about this. It wouldn't be inconsistent to have at Davin a female professor. Uh, not, and it's not like we're looking for that directly, like we're trying to be woke, so we'll get a female. But it would not be at all inconsistent with our vision to have that because we're just dudes in the public sphere trying to persuade people with a vision. And women have an enormous amount to offer that vision. And I think putting all that together in conversation with Christian nationalism really highlights, I think, again, in a full-orbed way where our vision, what, what, what all of that, what we're doing right now is kind of talking about vision, but it, it takes in a way, capturing that vision to then say, what does that look like in practical application in the real world right here? Yeah. 
Because yeah. whatever we're after is not some label called Christian nationalism. Whatever could possibly be meant by that has to contain a mental content. And it's right. that mental content we're after. And so what does that mean right now? Well, it doesn't mean like, well, get rid of the influence of women and freaking get rid of that. And then, we'll, you know, we're pursuing like becoming the 1500s again. That's right. stupid. Well, that was That's one of the things. That's one of the things I thought was interesting, you know, where, because so we've been talking about the magistrate is sort of uh, a pedagogue that can uh, both use the sword for discipline, but also encourage uh, certain behaviors through reward uh, and favoring um, certain, you know, behaviors and uh customs and ways to even have the discussion, actually. Uh, You can mute someone. And, you know, Twitter did this, right? They kicked Donald Trump off and Alex Jones because it's like, we're trying to have a conversation and you're very loud over there screaming and we can't have a good conversation. So if you want access to the table, so to speak, uh, the, the magistrate has the ability to do that. And one of the things that Lehman was sort of pushing against was, well, then what do we do? Do we turn all sins into crimes. And so it really does, I think, for the people that are um, outside of the Christian circles that would listen to this, one thing that they would be like, well, what do you, what does this mean for me? Right? Like, are you going to tell me that I have to believe in a God that I'm not persuaded of? Or are you going to force on me um, these, the uh, fourth commandment? Um, or, you know, what are you going to do about uh, HR departments in corporate America and the way that they create policy and procedure? Like, how, is the government going to start influencing cap- you know, capitalism? And isn't that against who we are? Or, or these sorts of questions. Uh, and I want to, I'm going to throw the question to Brad, and this will be sort of where we land the plane after this. Um, but I, I do want to say back at the beginning, Brad, you said there's sort of this whole spectrum uh, between reward and, and punishment. And then, Joe, you said that's what everyone's doing anyway. And I do want to say that is correct. It's not this big discussion for anybody that's not a Christian that thinks that this is scary language. We're simply saying it's not whether yep. someone's vision of the good yep. gets imposed via legislation. It's which of those things. Yep. And historically, the people of America were served well by a, by a sort of Christianity that guided our, uh, our, our government uh, and our people. Um, so not whether, but which, uh, but la- we can get into like technical. So what if someone says, Brad, like, well, because you said the first table. Well, the first table is blasphemy right you can't blaspheme god's name in vain you can't take his name in vain um you must keep the sabbath honor it and keep it holy uh have no idols so what does this do for sort of religious pluralism freedom of conscience how are those things being worked out in sort of what we're talking about yeah so i mean to what you said you know absolutely i'm always emphasizing it's not whether but which um, to tweak that a little bit, I wouldn't, you said, you know, whether the vision of the good would be implemented through legislation, I would say more broadly, it's not a question of whether it will be implemented politically with the idea that legislation is one form of that. Um, 
there, if you recognize this kind of sliding scale that legislation is sort of a codification of custom um, and societies at different times will sort of say this custom can go on, you know, the custom's working well enough as just an informal custom. Right. Um, without codifying. Without codifying it. Sometimes we need to codify it. Sometimes this is a bad custom. We need to use the law to override custom. Um, and then there's, of course, the role of, um, I call it symbolic authority or moral authority, the role that a president can play uh, not through enacting a law, but simply through his own speech and actions. Um, you know, the, uh, I mean, the one thing that came up in... Um, Culture is a little more unstable in 2022 after Donald Trump was the president, and there's a reason for that. Yes, yes, he's sure. He's an man. Yeah. Um, so, right, every society is politically implementing its moral and religious vision. Sometimes the level of formal law, sometimes not at the level of formal law. Um, and we've seen this, right? I mean, eventually it will be at the level of formal law, right? We've seen shifts, our, our culture sort of first changing the, the social norms around same-sex marriage and transgenderism. And then, and, and then it's um, having kind of trying to, use the bully pulpit perhaps to the presidency to to kind of right. bludgeon people into uh conformity and then ultimately it's going to codify it in law like we see in the respect for marriage act right um sorry what was the question you asked me because i was yeah that's okay i think you're sort of orbiting oh right. oh you were saying yeah yeah so what, what the the first table what would that mean practically right um i mean it's it's worth noting that at least with the third and fourth commandments those were standardly part of american law for most the majority of American history. And in fact, we still have to some extent um blasphemy laws well, on the books. Yeah, but no, I was gonna say oh. the Sabbath, the fact that the post office doesn't deliver on Sunday. Um I don't know what I actually I don't know what that's like in other modern countries, but I know actually in early America they did, and there was a strong Sabbatarian ab agitation to say we should not we should close the post offices on Sundays because we're a Christian nation <laughs> and they're still closed on Sundays. Now. Right. Um, of course, now that's being overridden by the fact that you, the Amazon just rents out the uh, USPS trucks to do us do their deliveries on Sunday. So it's interesting the extent to which freewheeling capitalism has sort of overridden these, these last remaining vestiges of, of Christian law. Uh, as far as, you know, the, um, the first, you know, the first commandment is not something that's, um, the first commandment is kind of like the tenth commandment, right? And it's it, it's speaking to the heart. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does it that mean um, in terms of actual action? Well, as soon as it, if you try to quantify it in action, you're moving into the second commandment. Um, mm. It's talking about a heart disposition. So, government can enforce the first commandment, but it can propound the first commandment by a form of public acknowledgement. Uh, and it's it's funny, you know, Lehman sort of said as a kind of reductio ad absurdum. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't you know put you know, in the name of the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or whatever, into a, a, your mortgage agreement, you know, so why would you do it in your constitution? And I was like, well, actually, and, you know, in early modern England, legal contracts did have explicit <laughs> implication <laughs> of the Trinity, you know, yeah. so it, it was understood that, like, this is a solemn legal agreement, because it's a solemn legal agreement, it has to call to witness the maker of all laws, right? Right. Uh, so I think there is a way in which that used to be fairly uncontroversial to have the first commandment there, the third, the fourth, you know, the second, um, I think, 
it's an interesting question of you know if somebody had attempted to uh i don't know build a a hindu temple you know in uh uh in philadelphia in in 1790s or whatever you know what, what would have happened um i think that's one where you might have had for a while kind of customary law operating strongly enough against certain forms of you, you just don't have you know we don't we don't worship pagan idols here right um but um well, and you do and there's to... still an extent to which you know right we don't we don't well pagan idols served by temple prostitution or child sacrifice and this is something i brought up in my talk right there are still all these yeah. ways in which we just sort of like well of course duh we're no not cannibals gonna, we're not going to allow these kinds <laughs> right, of religious right, practice right, right, right. Um, yeah you one of the things i think that's crucial is there are analogs of the first four laws in any law of the, of the first table of the decalogue in any system so we're about to celebrate thanksgiving well what is that but a holy day a yeah. holiday uh, that the government <laughs> Uh, has set apart i think it was abraham lincoln right that made it a holiday and and invoked god i mean like the government is quite literally saying here is a sabbath of sorts unto you the people and similarly with blasphemy one of the things you pointed out in your in your lecture is like the whole notion of hate speech that's so prevalent in our laws right now is sort of codifying in law a great the greatest good of sorts the greatest ethical good which is just an approximation of the character of god in any sane philosophy and then it's saying in our laws we will not permit speech against that greatest good and so it's not a question even on the first table in some sense it's not a question of whether it's a question of really to what extent you're going to be doing something somewhat analogous to what's going on in this first table and that brings me one of the things i think to just bring it all together this is the last comment i'll make before we close but uh you know, I don't want us to think almost in terms of the state versus the public sphere, even in all those comments I made about the role that egalitarianism plays in the public sphere. One of the things that's disproportionate there is I think the state, precisely as a pedagogue, has a disproportionate role to play in the public sphere, which means that Brad and Dale and Joe have in some ways through YouTube and such some access to the public sphere to persuade the hive mind, but the state has larger access because it's the daddy in the home, in the national home. It is the kind of, it's it's a bigger actor. And, And that's somewhat appropriate. And I think an interesting example, one of the questions that any modern society has to ask is how does the mass of direct access to the public sphere relate to what is actually said in that disproportionate actor into the public sphere and that's a very very complicated question and i think it's one that needs to be answered at the level of principle in fact to have a sane society not not this is a seizure of power but in a way one might uh i'd be curious what you think about this brad it's interesting to look at britain as a case like this that britain is this interesting example where they've said okay we recognize there's this kind of mass element to society. And so we're going to have a thing called the BBC, which says that no party is going to get disproportionate access to the public sphere, at least in some public public way. Uh, and that way, we've kind of guaranteed that the mass feels satisfied. And then there's other countries that have very various voting mechanisms that try to keep the mass satisfied because the voting mechanisms kind of guarantee that that mass hive mind moves into that influence on the public sphere. Nevertheless, 
the public sphere, the, the hive mind political actor, you might say, still has disproportionate access, which is why to this day, the king and the queen swear loyalty to the Protestant religion, as we just saw with King Charles III, long may he reign. Uh, a second, is it the second? Did third, I get that? Third. third, thank you. Woo! King Charles III, long may he, long may he reign. Uh, and likewise, in the BBC, you can have N.T. Wright, you know, you can have, because they're representatives of kind of the Protestant religion, you can have these. That doesn't mean that anybody in Britain is forced to believe any of that stuff. They, they have just, you have just as much an ability to do all sorts of things you do in America as you do in Britain. But there is a disproportion, and I think one could argue a lent social stability uh, mm -hmm. to that, to that awe reciprocity, to that, to mm -hmm. that remaining sense of magistrate as teacher uh and and a system that kind of organically responds to the magistrate as teacher with a feedback loop from the bottom but is not totally disproportionate to the bottom and mm -hmm. maybe the maybe the monarchy lends something to that that's hard to recapitulate in america yeah. i don't know yeah. but uh thoughts just three things really quick two things related to what you said um one thing going back a wee bit but your point about lending social stability, I think that's a very important point. Um, I think the extent to which, um, I mean, the, the the rival sources of news that we have in the U.S. right now and the intense polarization of them is certainly contributes to a state of kind of ongoing anxiety and agitation that is uh, no modern society is free from, but that is muted, I think, to some extent in a place like Britain. That was certainly my experience living there, in part because of a you know, shared source of news. And I think, um, you know, in, like the debate with Lehman and often these conversations talk about, um, in, you know, public religion, uh, the question is often, well, you know, is that really resulting more people being saved? You know, or is that just result in religious nominalism? Right. Uh, and I think part of my response to that is unless it actively, unless it actively, diminishes the number of people being saved if it just has no net effect right if it's like you know religious free-for-all versus uh strong instruments of public religion if those produce the same result in terms of actual um sincere religiosity then the social benefits of the propounded public religion um are enough of an argument in its favor right social stability is a real good um also noting I think the, the BBC thing is a good example of um, the fact that slippery slope arguments are often <laughs> are often invalid, right? You could easily imagine someone saying, well, you couldn't possibly have a government-sponsored uh, uh, news organization because that's just going to turn into, you know, like um, a total, you know, arm of pro propaganda arm. Yeah, like, like, yeah like Soviet state right, news right, right. or whatever, right? Well, obviously it can. But obviously, it needn't, right? It is. It's. It's. It's possible to have a better or worse version of a public institution. So similarly, I would say on the religion point, people say, um, "Well, if you're going to, you know, how are you going to stop this from turning into some kind of oppressive theocracy? You know, this is just an automatic slippery slope in that direction." Well, no, um, that is that could happen, but it it needn't happen. Um, and then just one more thing, going back a couple steps in the conversation. Um, when we say it isn't whether, but, but, but which, um, people might hear that as saying, well, you know, someone's, someone's going to be persecuting religious minorities, no matter what. So we might um, as well be the guys doing the persecuting. No, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, right. And I think what's important to say is it, 
it's not whether but which but which makes a difference um not all not all public orthodoxies are equally tolerant are equally tolerant or oppressive right and so our argument for restoring a protestant public orthodoxy is precisely that only a pro that a, a, Protestant public orthodoxy has historically shown itself to be the most capable of uh, sustaining tolerance. And that as we lose that, we are quickly turning into a much more intolerant society. Are, are yeah. you, are you, uh, are you, could, let me ask you, could you say that a Protestant orthodoxy is the, uh, the only way in which we can stain, sustain liberalism, the liberal order? Because uh, uh, this is an interesting thing. One of the rhetorical differences, I think, from the beginning from Davenant and a lot of even Protestant political theological discourse is we've had maybe maybe it's just to make the point in its most radical way, but we've had less of an allergy to the label liberal. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there is something of liberality and of the, the deepest kind of spiritual orientation of liberalism that is that that actually gets its spiritual birth, I think, from precisely what you just said. What do you think of that? Yeah, I could agree with that. It just depends how you define the term. Yeah, um, sure. I think, yeah, I, I can I can get on board with many critiques yeah. of liberalism. Don't say this at Thanksgiving. Endorsements of liberalism. Yeah, yes. right, yeah. Right, right. Well, this was good. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, Brad and I are going to feast tonight and celebrate Brad's birthday, which is on Thanksgiving. Say happy birthday to Brad. Happy birthday, Brad. How old are you going to be? <laughs> 35. Ah, I hear that this was, I hear that this is where, uh, the over the hill, it's all downhill. But I hear that this is like where males sort of begin to peak. Mm. Yeah. They've sort of, you yeah. know, accumulated all the. So, uh, for everybody, this is the best Brad will ever be, right? Yes, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you. Um, please head over to Davenant Institute, uh, check out the new, um, uh, webpage. Also, you can find all of our previous episodes on the Davenant Institute, Institute YouTube page. Um, yeah, and until then, please financially support these brethren in their in their important work. Thank you. Yes, we, we need money. <laughs> money never hurts. <laughs> all right, Joe. I love you, brother. Love you too, man. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, gentlemen. Yep. Bye.